right, show us what's behind us here. What do you have behind you here, buddy? Okay, right here. This is the path to Trump. The path okay, to the Trump. Trail, the trail to Trump. Yeah. We're trying to reach get Trump. connected. Reach the man. We want him to know that the models that said the 2.2 million people would die are false. Those PCR exactly. tests are falsely calibrated. And COVID's 100% treatable. Yeah, we're trying to get the message. So the thing is, is that I think, Clay, almost every single one of these people that's on this board, yeah. almost every single one of them we've had on the podcast. Or we've called them. Or we've called them. We've talked to them because we're trying to get the message to Trump. We're trying to ignite a revival. And every one of these little red uh, sparks means that we've talked to that person. Well, they kind of lit them up, you know. Oh, there's Casey Critch. He's coming to the conference. That's cool. Yeah. Look, and then we got, uh, let's see here, Lynn Wood. He's coming. Sydney, you got, uh, let's see here, yep, yep, you got General Flynn, he's coming, you got, uh, you got, uh, Ann Vanderstill, she's coming, Jeffrey Brayton, he's coming, Mike Adams, let's go check out what they're doing behind you, okay, there we go, all right, now, over here, this is where, the, uh, this is where all the elves are. Season 2, Episode 14, Path to Trump. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Coon. The intro to this week's episode is from a far-right podcaster named Clay Clark, who has created this whiteboard that looks like something from, I guess, a serial killer movie, uh, with all these crazy lines, and just hundreds of names on it, with a picture of Donald Trump and pictures of, of various other individuals, that just looks like one of those crazy walls that you might see in some police procedural or, like I said, movie about uh, some insane person, uh, which they have labeled the path to Trump. I'll discuss this in depth in the final segment of this episode. With just 24 hours to go before the first public hearing from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, there's been no shortage of January 6th related news. With news breaking related to the Eastman emails, witness appearances before the committee, and seditious conspiracy charges for five Proud Boy leaders, including Enrique Terrio and Joe Biggs. But before I discuss these developments, let's take a look at the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 821 individuals charged, an increase of two since the last episode. There have been a total of 381 indictments, an increase of three since the last episode, so finally some movement there after I think six or seven weeks. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always. One acquittal. 313 convictions, an increase of three since the last episode. And 140 sentencings, an increase of one since the last episode. Now, of course, this, you know, is all mainly due to the fact that the last episode came out less than a week ago, and we haven't hit Thursday and Friday for this week, which are typically the biggest days for new arrests. I am going to skip a defendant profile for this episode, since I will be profiling a figure from Clay Clark's whiteboard in the final segment. Part of what the committee has been doing has been to put out news in advance of the public hearings with regard to who will be testifying. To date, much of the news that's come out about testimony has been focused on a fairly small number of Trump administration officials and organizers who've refused to testify, who've refused to comply with their subpoenas. Guys like Bannon, you know, guys like Navarro, right? The only two defendants so far charged with contempt of Congress. 
And yet it's important to also remember that, you know, yes, these subpoenas need to be enforced, but this isn't the only source of valuable evidence. Other people also know the things, and many of these people will be people who will be cooperating fully, whether they be um, junior staffers who seem to have been burned by the Trump administration, uh, people who've grown a conscience, uh, people like Bill Barr, who certainly has his own agenda, nonetheless probably going to be more cooperative than some other figures, and other people who were simply there and who know things and who themselves didn't take part in the plot. So one witness who's going to be appearing is Nick Queston, the son of John Queston, who is a London-based film producer who has credits going back to uh, the 1960s. As John rather than Nick. Now, Quested, uh, Nick Quested won an Emmy Award in 2011 for his 2010 documentary, Restrepo, a film that documented the service of a U.S. Army platoon in Afghanistan. They basically bombed this platoon uh, for a year-long combat deployment in the valley. So maybe, you know, uh, in addition to his testimony, uh, they've got an Emmy Award-winning documentary and perhaps they could get him to help out on some of the audiovisual presentations, although, you know, again, uh, the committee did a, has done, you know, I think a good job in what they've shown us so far. Uh, certainly Congress has that capacity. Certainly we saw some good video presentations during the second impeachment. Now, of course, in this context, you know, why is Quested being called? He is, of course, relevant because his crew was doing a documentary on the Proud Boys, and so he certainly has a lot of material that's going to be of interest to the committee. You know, I think the garage meeting is just the, the tip of the iceberg. That, by the way, apparently is not going to be uh, focused on in these hearings. They're going to use other video evidence, previously unseen evidence. And I don't know why they're not using that garage meeting, at least not the first hearing. Uh, it could be that they're going to establish links to other parts, you know, people like Bianca Garcia, for example, later on. Uh, or it could be maybe the Department of Justice has asked them not to use that because it's a key component of their seditious conspiracy cases. We'll see. But for whatever reason, that's, you know, that's not going to be the, the emphasis of the video evidence. Nonetheless, I suspect that there will be excellent professionally, professional quality video evidence that th this witness is going to bring with him. Another person who may be testifying publicly is Pat Cipollone the former White House counsel under Trump. Cipollone took part in any number of meetings that would be of interest to the committee, including one on January 3, 2021, in which he and a number of top Justice Department officials threatened to resign immediately if Trump carried out his threat to fire Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark, who presumably would have aided Trump in his campaign to illegally retain power. Another witness who's going to testify is, of course, Jeff Rosen himself. So I imagine that that's, they might even sit next to each other and be testifying on the same subject at the same time. And another witness who may be called is Jeff Clark himself, of course, who has some explaining to do. Now, I don't expect that they're going to testify. I think this is going to be a subject of a later uh, hearing. But there's going to be definitely be a hearing uh, on that whole scheme to install Jeff Clark at the Department of Justice as part of the overall effort to overthrow the 2020 presidential election results.
So as I mentioned last uh, episode, a, another person who's going to te be testifying is Mark Short, Mike Pence's chief of staff, who's already testified, of course, under oath and is likely to testify publicly as well. It's still unknown if Pence himself will offer testimony, but that would be bombshell testimony for sure if that happens. It's also come out that a person who will definitely be testifying at the opening hearing is Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards. Edwards was the first officer to be injured on January 6th. Uh, you may remember, I talked about this in an earlier episode, Ryan Sampsel is the defendant who has been incarcerated this whole time and uh, has a, a trial pending and was the first to charge the barricades on January 6th. And the process of charging the barricades, he also knocked down Officer Edwards. Edwards' head hit the concrete steps, uh, causing her to lose consciousness, and she was subsequently diagnosed with a concussion. One of the things I'm curious about is the possibility of whether or not we might actually see testimony by someone like, let's say, Ryan Sampson. We know that any number of defendants have actually testified. Um, he's been cool in his jets. He's got a trial coming up, but, you know, he is, um, you know, he's probably had some time to, to get, accumulate some regrets anyway. So, again, one of the, I think, dramatic things they could show is someone like Samsel, who, you know, um, I mean, I, he's someone who's got convictions for domestic abuse, uh, is a violent person documented in court records. And yet, in some sense, uh, you know, appears to have been goaded by Joe Biggs into uh, being the very first attacker at the Capitol on January 6th. So, you know, maybe they can split these defendants and, you know, get him to, to come out and say, I was wrong, what I did was wrong, it's Joe Biggs' fault, and, you know, give him the squirt some, right? We've, we've seen any number of these defendants, especially at sentencing and at trial, you know, wind up becoming an emotional, and this is someone who, in, in some sense, you know, uh, might have some cause for regret. So that's something to look out for. Don't know if, if that's going to happen, or if they're just going to get what we might expect to be, you know, sort of friendly witnesses to testify in this hearing. Also, uh, according to reporting by Hugo Lowell, put a link in the show notes, the first public hearings are going to include an hour-long introduction from Chair Benny Chomson and Vice Chair Elizabeth Cheney. I think I remember Thompson, no. Thompson and Cheney. So the rest of the meeting is going to focus on the activities of the Proud Boys. Now, I, obviously, Nick Quested's evidence is going to be uh, critical there. He's going to be a, a good witness. He's got professional quality video. And they are, of course, going to handle that now familiar moment when Joe Biggs talks to Ryan Samsel and allegedly, apparently, urges him to storm the barricades. Uh, allegedly, Biggs showed Samson gun and it implicitly threatened him and questioned his manhood or, or something. I don't know. We'll see. You know, again, that's why I think I think that kind of testimony might be useful. Uh, it might not be the kind of thing they would tease. Well, I could be wrong about that. So that brings me to the the previously mentioned uh, news that. There are new charges in the Proud Boys case. The previous conspiracy indictment against the Proud Boys leadership to include Enrique Terrio, Joe Biggs, Ethan Mordine, Zach Reel, and Dominic Pizzola, uh, they've been superseded with new charges. 
so the old conspiracy was regarding obstruction of official proceeding, 1512. We're all familiar with that charge by now. Uh, and an additional charge has been added for all five defendants, seditious conspiracy. As I've mentioned on the show before, this was to be expected, because the Oath Keepers already had been hit with the seditious conspiracy charge, and everything that the Oath Keepers did, the Proud Boys also did, and worse. So when the government decided to bring the seditious conspiracy charge in the middle of January, I think it was January 12th or 13th, I'm not sure offhand, uh, it marked a change in the government's theory of the case. I've listened to, to some of these, and uh, they've been asked, the government has been asked in open court, you know, what's the theory of the case, has it changed? And the government, they've said, prosecutors have said, yes, it's changed. And the way that it's changed is that the theory of the case doesn't just include January 6th, but rather the overall effort, both before and after January 6th, to keep Trump in power unconstitutional. What's interesting to me in this context is that it took so long for them to issue this charge against the Proud Boys. They had this theory that, okay, we're, for these top-level defendants, we're going to move to seditious conspiracy. We've got enough to prove this. It's beyond just obstruction of official proceeding. It's far more than that. And I don't think it's coincidence that they, they waited until this week, the week of the first public hearing, and the first public hearing itself is going to focus on the Proud Boys that they hit them with these charges. So what does that mean? Uh, it means, for one thing, there's a possibility that this seditious conspiracy is more broad. We've already had some people plead to it. And so, you know, they can expand this out, right? They can build this seditious conspiracy. Because as we know, if you've been paying attention, there's lots and lots of people who could have been taking part, you know, in, in, of this seditious conspiracy. And basically, you can charge this if you've got someone who is uh, trying to obstruct the government by force. And, you know, that's what the elements of the seditious conspiracy. They're going to prove it in the Oath Keepers case. They've already had defendants plead there. And I think they're going to prove it in the Proud Boys case as well. And perhaps they can expand this to include other defendants. But, again, the second thing is not only could they expand this charge, it also shows possible coordination between the Department of Justice and the committee itself. So part of the bombshell that they may be readying tomorrow is to show in detail the alleged conspiracy between the Proud Boys and then to directly link this conspiracy to the central plotters in places such as the Trump administration itself, the Trump campaign, and perhaps even the RNC. One other bit of serendipity that I'd like to address is the ruling on Tuesday by Judge Carter that John Eastman must turn over 159 documents to the January 6th committee. Most importantly, Carter ruled that one document wasn't covered by attorney-client privilege because of the crime fraud exemption to attorney-client privilege. So this, in effect, is a, is a finding by a federal judge that there's evidence of a crime that was committed by an attorney in the process of doing their legal work on behalf of their client, in this instance, the Trump campaign. Among the documents uh, that the judge looked at was an agenda for a group that met on December 9th, 2021. And this agenda had the title, all caps, Ground Game Following November 4 Election Results. So, interesting date, right? November 9th, 2021. 
and this document included the item that a sitting member of Congress would challenge the election results on uh, January 6th. So it shows that they, you know, they were really given up on legal recourse earlier in the process than had been publicly known. Also noteworthy is that Eastman advised against taking some legal challenges. There were some legal challenges that, you know, they were discussing making, and apparently Eastman said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take this to court, precisely because he wanted to leave it open. He wanted it to be an unresolved question so that they could pursue this other little avenue, right? Storming of the Capitol, delaying certification, raising challenges with the Electoral Count Act. There's some people who feel that, well, if it doesn't happen on January 6th, according to the statute, then, uh, you know, the inauguration never happens, and you either have to redo the presidential election, perhaps, or maybe have the military redo it. You know, they had, they had a lot of different schemes that were possible at that point. Um, the judge notes, though, that, you know, they can't claim to be interest, acting in the interest of the rule of law, and then explicitly avoid taking legal recourse, right? So that's partly why you've got that exemption there to attorney-client crime, you know, privilege on the basis of crime fraud. You know, you can't say, well, I was doing legal work and then advise your client, no, we, we don't want to take this to court because they're going to rule against us. That is flawed. Judge Carter called him out on it rightly. And finally, I know last time I talked quite a bit about what we can expect, what possible bombshells uh, we might expect. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the prospect uh, that we're, we're seeing, you know, there's another category of people that I'd like to draw your attention to. Uh, not just people who were, uh, you know, kind of low-level functionaries, right, or maybe people like Bill Barr who went along with things to a certain point then realized they were risking their law license and they're, you know, possibly going to prison. Uh, what Cipollone reminds me of, a prospect that he might testify, is the possibility of testimony from people who played some role, at least, in thwarting the plot. Whether they be someone like Cipollone, who, you know, overall, probably not, like, on the side of law and justice, nonetheless, in this instance, realized that there was a bridge too far that he would not cross, uh, or others. So I think of people, for example, um, that basically, in other instances, may have thwarted the plot in ways that are unknown, right? Uh, so, you know, for example, um, sorry, I had a bit of a brain fart. Uh, I was thinking, actually, of General McConville, right, who spoke with Walker, I believe, at 508 uh, on January 6th, and said that, well, I don't know why you're not deploying, um, you know, Ryan McCarthy's telling everybody that deployment has been authorized. And Walker goes ahead and finally, at that point, deploys because, uh, you know, they were done with being stonewalled by the, the Pentagon. So, you know, we don't know. I mean, how many other military officials, for example, uh, wound up blocking this plot? I mean, the, the, the call for military intervention uh, by people like Phil Waldron and Mike Flynn certainly are all, are all over the January 6th story. And we don't know how many uh, officers, whether they be general officers or other people, wind up opposing these kinds of efforts. So that's something I think that, you know, would fly under the radar 
and is something that perhaps we can look for, if not at this hearing, then at a later hearing when they specifically discuss some of the other things that, that happened, right? That business with uh, Piot and Charles Flynn, Stonewall and Walker, uh, all the other stuff with regard to, uh, you know, the, the executive orders, intelligence findings, memos that would have handed over elections to the military and, you know, basically uh, undone electoral democracy for good in the United States. These things are thwarted, and we don't know who thwarted them, and perhaps we never will, but perhaps some of these people are going to wind up testifying. So uh, that is another category of people, uh, another category of witness from whom we might expect to hear. People who, for one reason or another, whether it be, you know, some sort of attachment to uh, love of law or democracy or electoral democracy in America, or even just naked self-interest, people who resisted the coup attempt, right? So, you know, again, even like someone like Pat Sabloni, right? That act of resistance of saying, yeah, you're, you've gone a bridge too far. Uh, you can't just fire the acting attorney general. Uh, I'm going, White House counsel is done, and you're also going to, you know, wind up having almost everybody in the Justice Department. You're going to be left with just Jeff Clark. Um, you know, which, of course, I mean, Trump might not have a problem with. You know, great. <laughs> you know, he's, as he said before, he likes the acting, right? He doesn't like actually appointing people to their jobs. I mean, so much of what he did just violated so many rules and norms and practices. You know, it's inconceivable. People generally like to have their appointments. Trump preferred to have acting people who were personally beholden to him. All right, so now I'd like to move on to this examination of the whiteboard that I mentioned earlier in the show. You've probably seen this thing. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Uh, part of what I do on the show is to read documents, long documents all the time, so you don't have to. I guess this thing is a kind of document. It is also a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, I saw it, I think, on Joe Dempsey 2's thread on Twitter, you know, ages ago. I looked into it, and I just, once I realized that this is kind of crazy, I don't mean to, you know, I don't want to stigmatize mental health, but, you know, nonsensical, I, I kind of dropped it. Um, then I saw another thread not too long ago uh, by Gal Suburb, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I started this. I should probably finish it. And so uh, I didn't finish it entirely. Um, I'll, I'll talk about what I did in a moment. Um, you know, when I first saw it, I, I just spent quite a bit of time staring at it, trying to make sense of it, you know, started to make some notes, and I realized that it didn't make a lot of sense. There are all these lines showing connections between people, but these aren't necessarily logical connections, and there's no overarching structure or organization to it. There's all these lines that radiate out, and then all these names that are, are drawn in a kind of, I guess, a, a flower pattern, right, with the names sort of being petals of a flower uh, radiating out from Trump with arrows pointing from them uh, to the center of the circle uh, and uh, Trump's lovely face. So, you know, you could actually probably do some kind of analysis to reverse engineer the order in which the names are written, because some of the radiating lines are clearly drawn before other parts, and there's text squeezed in between various other elements. I don't know how, how worthy this is of that kind of endeavor. Um, you know, I think the whiteboard actually began with the picture of Trump at the center, and then the maniac who drew the thing began on the center left and worked clockwise from there, and then went back and filled in the spaces 
with as many names as possible with the overall goal of just filling in as much white space on the board as possible. Now, as a consequence of this, of course, it's not all entirely legible. And uh, I didn't even attempt to get every name on the board. Part of the reason why I was reluctant to do this to begin with is because I knew I would wind up with missing data. There's legibility issues. Uh, also, the blue text on the white background in particular doesn't show up well on the video. And I think that on a, maybe that particular dry erase marker was running out of ink. Um, so I just focused on the names that were written in black ink, the black text. And I'm fairly satisfied with that. Uh, these were apparently the first names that were written on the board. And so presumably the most important names, at least in, in the mind of the author. Now, I want to emphasize that this is not an org, org chart for the insurrection. To me, I see it as a strange kind of magical inscription, uh, as if the author believed that by writing out all these names, he could magically get Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act and begin the tribulation or, or something. Um, it was apparently drawn up by uh, Clay Clark or someone working for him or with him. He's a Trumpist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, he's actually from Minnesota, but he spent his entire adult life in Oklahoma. And he hosts a podcast. He is an alumnus of Oral Roberts University and also a charismatic Christian. Talk about what that means in a moment. He's currently touring the Seditionist Roadshow, which he calls the Reawaken America Tour, the basic point of which seems to be to keep the insurrection going. This has been ongoing for a year now, and there are more dates continuing through August. His star attraction continuously has been General Michael Flynn, he's a close associate of General Flynn. Now, Clark's brand of charismatic Christianity is something called the New Apostolic Reformation. If you're familiar with Dominionism, that's basically it. These are people who believe in demons, they believe in magic, they believe in the prosperity gospel, and their goal is to turn the United States into a theocracy. It's a new religion. Explicitly, their goal is to create a new form of Christianity that would unite all the various sects and uh, denominations under one banner. And it is also, in my opinion, unique among Abrahamic religions um, and really represents something new. Because if you think about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they are all scholarly religions. They are based on a book. And not only that, they're also based on hundreds of years of tradition carefully worked out by religious scholars. All those things, right? They have religious scholarly traditions that have worked out uh, what religious doctrine is going to be. And, you know, whatever you think of that, that actually imposes some kind of restraint on adherents. They can't just make things up as they go along. They're bound by these scholarly traditions of reading the book of textual exegesis, uh, you know, looking at the book as a source of divine authority. This new apostolic reformation does away with all that. Because as a, a spin-off of Pentecostalism, they believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And they believe in prophecy. And so, uh, you've got the Bible on the one hand, but all that's out the window. There's some prophet, a divinely anointed prophet, who's been touched by Jesus, uh, has a dream, then it becomes doctrine. Right? So, you know, it evolves out of Pentecostalism, 
it's really only about 20 years old in its current form. Current form. Uh, there was a new age that was declared in 2001. They've also reworked the Bible. They've reissued their new version of the Bible. And if they, they want to, they can always just rely on prophecy to create new dogma out of whole cloth. So it's a thoroughly politicized new religion that they've created that they can make up new content whatever they want. So, you know, it doesn't matter if the Bible says that uh, a person becomes a person when they're born and they draw their first breath, they can go back and they can retcon that. They can have a, a dream and, and say that, you know, uh, whatever they want to, right? They can make it all up as they go along. It's the, the logical outcome of what you see with, let's say, Amy Simple McPherson, right? And the birth of evangelical Christianity uh, in, you know, the sort of folk religion that's embodied in Pentecostalism. Religious tradition, scholarly tradition, hundreds of years of religious thought and contemplation all out the window. Anybody can come along, declare that they are a prophet, and that there are flocks who will flock to them and they can say whatever they want uh, and do whatever they want because they are divinely ordained. Um, you know, they have this weird thing I, I, I refer to as lather, rinse, repeat Christianity, right? Well, you can basically, these, these people oftentimes will act worse than normal people. Uh, they can always just, they go, they sin, they just accept Jesus in their hearts, and they're redeemed. They're washed in the blood of the heavenly lamb. And therefore, they can just go forth and sin, and do whatever they want. And they're all good again, right? Because they can just then accept Jesus in their hearts, and be washed in the blood of the heavenly lamb. And then they're, they're good again. Lather, rinse, repeat, right? So it's very strange. It is a very strange uh, kind of thoroughly politicized religion that is, in a sense, very radical. And the radicalism comes from the fact that they can simply just make it up as they go along uh, without having to pay any attention at all to the you know, normal sources of scholarly authority, right? So oddly enough, even though you know all the main Abrahamic faiths, Christianity... Islam, Judaism, all draw their authority from this text. They don't, they don't have to rely on text. They can just make it up as they go along. And they do. So the whiteboard itself isn't an org chart for the insurrection, no matter what it may look like. What it does do, however, is to give us a list of names. Mainly, but not exclusively, Trumpist New Apostolic Reformation people. It's probably especially accurate when it comes to Mike Flynn and his circle, uh, given Clark's well-established ties to General Flynn. I believe that the Flynn connection actually may have been the very first thing that was drawn on the board. And so I'll go, I'll outline that briefly uh, before I go on to the list itself. There's this path to Trump that includes Phil Waldron, who we've mentioned before, this guy who's connected to uh, military intelligence and who was the, the author of one of the uh, executive orders that would have called for, you know, that whole invoking the Insurrection Act, you know, having the military take over elections, that sort of thing. Doug Billings and Ann Vanderskeel, and then General Mike Flynn, and also Sheriff Richard Mack, Roger Stone, General Thomas McInerney, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and, of course, Trump. So that, lot, that group of names, that little cluster on the board, gives you a pretty good picture of one set of participants 
who worked on spreading disinformation on the 2020 election. And it's basically, you can sort of back engineer this, it's one of the pods that we saw in Exhibit 10, right? Perhaps the one that Kelly Sorrell describes as the, the back channel pod, or perhaps the QAnon pod. But as I mentioned again, even with all that, even with the fact that, um, you know, you can see there's that one connection that, that does look kind of like an orange chart for the insurrection. Um, a lot of it is kind of just kind of, you know, magical thinking. And so, you know, I saw this thing by Gal Suburban and I started doing this. I'm well, maybe I, I should go ahead and complete this. But then I, I saw a name uh, that I actually hadn't noticed before um, because it's not really the proper name, actually. The name on the whiteboard that really got me to to decide, okay, I'm, I'm all in, I'm going to stare at this thing and pause the video and read, you know, as best I can and keep on doing it, was this one. There's a man described on the board as Hans Heritage Foundation. So who is Hans Heritage Foundation? When I saw that, I, I kind of froze. That is Hans Anatole von Spaskowski. Uh, that stopped me dead in my tracks because that's, you know, basically what made me go full in into compiling this list. Who's von Spakovsky? He is the original gangster, the OG of all Republican schemes to disenfranchise voters. If you're familiar with the Marvel Universe, it's kind of like you're sorting through a list of random people and suddenly you see the name Arnim, Arnim Zola, right? Dr. Zola. All of a sudden, you know Hydra is involved. Von Spakovsky is from Huntsville, Alabama, uh, a place coincidentally where many German immigrants arrived after World War II uh, with Operation Paperclip, an operation that, of course, was notorious for transporting Nazis to the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II. Not saying that that's his circumstance, but his father is Russian, uh, apparently a white Russian, uh, from you know going back to the Bolshevik Revolution, and his mother uh, was a German national. They were apparently displaced persons after the war, and somehow wound up in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, in 1951. At the same time, you had any number of German scientists arriving there. I mean, they could have been there just because there, there happened to be a lot of German-speaking people in Huntsville at the time. I don't know. Personally, if I were someone from Europe, Alabama would be like the last place I want to go. Like, if you've ever been in summer in Alabama, you know, like someplace in northern Europe with 11 sunny days a year and, you know, yet cold winters, mild springs and falls, looks a lot better than, like, nine months of unrelenting summer, at least personally, anyway. From Huntsville, Alabama. So he's also a Federalist Society member and a leading advocate of voter identification as a tool supposedly to secure elections, but, of course, actually to achieve disenfranchisement of voters. And uh, he's also been, uh, work, he's worked in the Justice Department, uh, supposedly enforcing voting rights during the Bush era, but, of course, again, actually working to disenfranchise minority voters. And he also served on Trump's advisory board on election security, again, disenfranchising voters. He's currently employed as a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, heading up something they call the Election Law Reform Initiative. Now, throughout the course of his career, Von Spakovsky has been a bit of a one-trick pony. He's maintained continuously, without evidence, that not only is election fraud rampant in the United States, but it also regularly determines the outcomes of elections. 
No serious student of U.S. elections actually believes anything like this, but Von Spakovsky has built his entire career on this, and the Heritage Foundation has been very happy to support these spurious claims. Von Spakovsky's latest book has been endorsed by Mike Lee, Edward Meese, and Mark Levin. Uh, the blurb from Levin reads, quote, I have been warning for years how American Marxist movements are destroying our country. This new book by John Fund and Hans von Spakovsky exposes how they are changing the rules governing our elections to make it easier to manipulate election results so they can consolidate their political control. End quote. Now, I have seen no evidence suggesting that von Spakovsky was involved in January 6th. But given that he is one of the central, you know, the, one of the central claims of the Trump administration has been that there's massive fraud, and this is the go-to guy for the entire conservative movement when it comes to manufacturing evidence of fraud, it wouldn't surprise me that, you know, he winds up being in somebody's text messages, right? But, again, the main criterion for appearing on Clay Clark's whiteboard, of course, is that they appeared on Clay Clark's podcast which, of course, Von Spakovsky has done. Things that, that, that tyrannical leaders do, uh, tyrannical, tyrannical dictators do. What is the Democrat Party trying to do here with this election and the mail-in voter stuff? What, let's go explain that in, in the way that the average listener can, can understand, assuming they, they, they know nothing about the voter fraud that the Democrats are committing. Well, you know, there's this big push from the left uh, to try to force states have everyone vote by mail. There's there's huge problems with that. First of all, um, the chances of your ballot being rejected go up if you vote by mail. Um, uh, it's because voters make mistakes. You know, they forget to sign a ballot. They don't provide all the information. Or the U.S. Postal Service might not deliver it in time, or they might forget to postmark or print. But at the same time that they're that they've been pushing. For everyone to vote by mail, they've launched lawsuits all over the country in which they're getting federal judges to say that states can't enforce the basic security protocols that states have put in place to try to uh, stop uh, fraud in the, in, the, in the absentee balloting process. To give you a quick example of this, um, in South Carolina, for example, they filed a lawsuit saying the state should, be, should not be allowed enforce its witness signature requirement. Because, you know, when, when you sign the absentee ballot, you got to have a witness to sign it. Correct. Also, to, to authenticate that you, the voter, act, actually did it. A similar lawsuit was filed in Alabama to not only get rid of the witness signature requirement, but to not allow the state to enforce its voter ID requirement. At the same time, these lawsuits are saying, oh, you should extend the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots until after election day. Get out of here. Yeah, and in some places, uh, judges, usually liberal judges, are saying, oh, and by the way, uh, yeah, we're going to extend the deadline. And uh, election officials, you have to count the ballot even if there's no postmark on it, which means that uh, you don't know whether the ballots were actually voted after election day. Talk about they're also they're also in those lawsuits asking for judges to override state laws that ban vote by 
campaign staffers delivering his homes to people's homes. Elon uh, Omar, 5th Congressional District there in uh, Minnesota, in the great state of Minnesota. Uh, the Project Veritas came out and did a very, very nice expose documentary exposing the voter fraud. But they're straight up running around with cash, giving cash to people saying, hey, you want some cash? Yeah, I want some cash. Here, let me give you cash. I just need you to fill out this, this uh, go ahead and fill out the ballot, and I'll give you some cash. Right. This is happening at scale, and it's being funded by the most, most nefarious, anti-American, George Soros-esque sources. I got three final... So that, of course, is Clay Clark and Hans von Stokowski uh, from his appearance on uh, Clark's podcast. Now, as you can see, you know, he's a little bit more reasonable than someone like Clay Clark, who goes full George Soros, although he does it right, you know. Uh, when he's talking about, when Clark is talking about the, the uh, fraudulent evidence of fraud produced by Project Veritas, the ironically named Project Veritas, and everything that they do is a lie. Nonetheless, um, Spikowski excuse me, has uh, walked a little bit more of a clever line than many of the so-called conservative intellectuals with regard to the 2020 election. He's maintained that changes to the voting process were improper, uh, but also, you know, he does occasionally retweet some some really strange kinds of nonsense, like, like you know, 2,000 mules style nonsense, right? Such as the claim that there were 15 mail-in ballots, 15 million mail-in ballots that were unaccounted for. Um, you know, again, that's not unaccounted for. These were mainly ballots that were simply not returned quite probably because the voter in question either didn't vote or voted in person. And yet, he makes this claim that, well, this somehow creates conditions for fraud, but there's no evidence. There's no, there's no substantiation. There's no attempt to substantiate this claim of fraud uh, at all. Because, you know, he knows, right? And he knows that duplicate votes aren't counted. But he simply implies that these unreturned mail-in ballots are somehow nefarious. But again, no evidence that they've resulted in any actual fraud. So he's kind of ridiculous, but he's not Italian satellite or Israeli orbital mind control uh, laser ridiculous. So unlike some of the election fraud proponents, he actually understands electoral systems in the United States. What he does to do is he uses case selection to twist the facts so they fit his underlying narrative of massive electoral fraud, voter fraud, determining outcomes in elections, which again, no serious student of uh, politics or elections in the country don't do, right? I mean, he is somebody who actually understands how our election infrastructure works. And in fact, one of the reasons why uh, we have, you know, relatively few people getting charged with these things is because our system is actually pretty good at ferreting out this kind of nefarious behavior. So, you know, I'll give you an example of the kind of work that he's involved in. Uh, the Heritage Foundation maintains a database of supposed instances of voter fraud in the United States, and they've tallied up 1,357 examples. For example, in my home state of North Carolina, uh, this database goes back to 1986. But then there's a gap between 1986 and 2003 with no reported instances uh, in the state and a further gap between 2004 and 2012 with no observed instances. And again, in 2020, no observed instances of this kind of fraud, and only 50 cases over the entire period, up 
during which millions upon millions of votes were cast in this state, right? So if anything, their own data shows that voter fraud uh, is exceedingly and vanishingly rare. According to the data for North Carolina, uh, there are only about, uh, sorry, not, not you know, nationwide, there's 37 cases a year, right? And the vast majority of these cases are individuals. Now, Heritage claims that their database isn't the universe of cases, which is absolute malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. So on the one hand, you know, I mean, you're trying to show massive fraud. On the other hand, you're saying that your database isn't, you know, exclusive. Well, make up your mind, right? Um, you know, again, there's, there's a numerator and there's a denominator. So, you know, you, you can't weave around some subset of cases and act like it's proof. Your job is to go out and identify all the cases. They just want to have it both ways. They want to be able to claim that voters per fraud is widespread. But then when you, they're pressed with obvious problems of the data, that, you know, 1,300 cases over a 50-year period, uh, well, 40-year period, not a big deal, um, they claim that the database isn't intended to be comprehensive. Well, if it's not intended to be comprehensive, why have you dedicated, you know, I, they've had this thing up for years, right? Why have you dedicated so much time and resources to it? Uh, you know, if you're, you're just, it's just basically a propaganda, you know, effort. I mean, you, if you were to document almost any other crime in the United States over that long a period, you would find it was more widespread than this one. And so the work that Fung Spakovsky has done for decades has been to undermine confidence in elections in the United States. And this absolutely laid the groundwork for Trump's claims of fraud in 2016 and 2020. I don't think the impact of his work and Heritage's work has, can be underestimated in this regard, even if he personally had no role in January 6th. And what makes him worse than many others who spread lies about election security in the United States is that he, he knows enough to know that what he's doing is disinformation. If you want to be able to claim persistent voter fraud, you'd have to understand both the numerator and the denominator. The numerator is the 1,357 observations of voter fraud, but the denominator over the same time period is in hundreds of millions, if not billions of votes. That's how many elections, we have so many elections in this country. So again, the overall voter fraud rate is minuscule, absolutely minuscule. Not only that, uh, if you took it on a bipartisan basis, I mean, most of the ones I see are Republican, but they probably cancel each other out on a partisan basis, and the proposed fixes always wind up disenfranchising many more people than we observe in the heritage data, which, despite their protestations, is probably much closer to the actual universe of likely cases than they would ever care to admit. So, you know, things like signature requirements, right? How many people have signatures that, that line up? You look at Donald Trump's signature now and his signature from the 1980s, completely different. So, you know, I would disqualify Donald Trump's signature if I was doing signature matching. You know, again, where are the odds of like somebody scribbling this, you know, in a hurry when they're, they're registering to vote at a card table? You know, it is, the work is, again, the real aim is to disenfranchise people, not to achieve election security. At any rate, Fon Spikowski's appearance is what gave me the final push to go ahead and catalog the names that were written in black on the whiteboard. 
Most of them appear to be people who have appeared on Clay Clark's podcast, but there are also more than a few January 6th figures as well, and, you know, there's some overlap there, right? So I thought it was worth taking a look. Um, if you look at the totality of this set of names, um, you know, again, three things are apparent. Of course, first, that focus on podcasts, yes. In addition to being some kind of magical incantation, of course, this whiteboard is also an effort at self-promotion. There's also the uh, aforementioned prominence of new apostolic revival figures and other sort of related Pentecostal and evangelical Protestant people. And finally, the overrepresentation uh, of people from Clark's home base in Oklahoma. I mean, again, as you get from the clip, he's from Minnesota originally, um, but, you know, has lived in Oklahoma for most of his adult life. And so there's just a lot of Oklahoma people, right? And if you're going to take this as a, you know, it wasn't Oklahoma. Oklahoma didn't do this by themselves, but lots of Oklahoma conservatives love to appear on Clay Clark's podcast. Now, I know that I already criticized the Heritage Foundation for its duplicity and presenting a list somehow as not comprehensive, but acting as though it is. The handwriting of Clark or whoever did this whiteboard isn't great, and it, this list that I'm giving you is based off of still images and video of the whiteboard. There's some parts where they focus in, it's laser crisp, and then there's other parts of the board where they don't ever focus the thing off at all, right? So I had to go back and forth hitting the pause button at various times to try to uh, make out different scribblings. And, you know, just whole sections of the board that aren't visible. Um, and, again, I deliberately only look for the names that are written in black ink, uh, which, you know, I think the author of the board feels are the most important names. Um, but also, conveniently, they are the names that are the most legible. So any errors in this list are my own. Um, I managed to come up with a list of a total of 174 persons and entities, some of which appear more than once, and I have noted when this occurs. Uh, again, I don't want to thank uh, Gallison Bourbon, whose thread on Twitter basically gave me the impetus to go back to my old notes and uh, finish this project, which I had given up on as nonsensical, uh, which now I think, well, there's a little bit more there than there was, I think. Uh, perhaps I was a little bit too quick to, um, you know, I think that this was not worth my time. Nonetheless, uh, it is what it is. So, you know, again, inclusion of any one person on this list doesn't necessarily mean anything other than the fact that Clay Clark includes them in, in their, you know, his, his magical path to Trump whiteboard. So, uh, I guess I'll begin with... Hans Spakovsky, already described in detail. Prophet Amanda Grace from Ark of Grace Ministries. Rick Pearson, Oral Roberts graduate, heads up an outfit called Prophecy USA. Floyd Brown, a longtime Republican activist and political consultant, Citizens United founder. Amy Hugh, I'm not really sure on this one, might be associated with Epoch Times. Kat Kerr, this is someone who's a YouTuber who believes that she has toured heaven. Prophet Lance Wallnow, a social media influencer and podcaster. Prophet Kevin Zadai, also claims to have visited heaven. Pastor Dave Scarlett, yet another pastor who has died, gone to heaven, and come back to tell us all about them. John Durham, special counsel who has spent millions of dollars in taxpayer expense 
only to lose in court. Another uh, issue with handwriting here, it appears to say Funding Lin, L-I-N, which might be some kind of reference, of course, to Lin Wood, former uh, Cal Rittenhouse attorney. Dr. Keith Rose, a plastic surgeon and podcaster. Pastor David Bendick, pastor of Rock City Church in Corpus Christi, Texas. Audrea Becker, also, uh, I believe, affiliated with Epoch Times. Kevin Freeman, host of The Economic War Room. Chad Prather, host of The Chad Prather Show on The Blaze. Hogan Gidley, former Trump press secretary. Pastor Leon Benjamin, yet another self-described apostle, affiliated with something called the Remnant Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and New Life Harvest Church in Richmond, Virginia, with franchising out. Glenn Beck, a far-right infotainment propagandist. Whitney, not sure who Whitney is. Lynn Wood, apparently listed on the board more than once. Probably deserves it. Senator Scott Sapicki, actually this is a representative, Scott Sapicki, uh, from the Tennessee General Assembly. We'll, we'll see this come up a few times. Uh, he built there are a few errors in my mind. Ben Carson, uh, again, another former Trump administration official. Phil Hotzenpiller, who is an author, life coach, and end times prophet. Vicki Clark, I'm not sure who that person is. Frank Omedia. Omedia is a pastor at Touch Heaven Ministries in Ohio, and was also Trump's liaison for Christian policy in 2016. Casey Krejci, who is a supposed health researcher and pandemic quack. There's Tiffany Trump, Trump's least favorite daughter. Marla Maples, Donald Trump's second wife. Charisma Magazine, a leading magazine aimed at the new apostolic revival. Mike Smith, not sure who Mike Smith is, I'll be honest with you. Lots of people that name could be, I don't remember. Karen Harden, this is an author, literary agent, and prophetic blogger, whatever that is. Uh, this one says, Brian Glenn, RSBN, that of course stands for Right Side Broadcasting Network, yet another proliferating uh, series of far-right uh, journalistic outlets. Infotainment outlets. Prophet Chris Reed, pastor of Morning Star Ministries in Fort Sill, South Carolina. Charlene Bullinger. Uh, Bullinger, of course, is a COVID disinformation entrepreneur. And if you follow January 6th closely, of course, uh, she and her husband, Ty Bullinger, uh, had their own rally on January 6th. So these are sedition VIPs. Prophet Mar Mario Marillo. Uh, who is a Tennessee tent revival pastor. Del Bigtree, an anti-vax television and film producer and head of Informed Consent Action Network. Charlotte Save Trump. Not sure what, what that is. A reference to uh, some sort of organization called Save Trump that has Charlotte involved in it. Person in the city. Not sure. Dr. Mark Sherwood, naturopathic physician and an expert on, you guessed it, COVID anti-vax talking points. Kirsten Megan of Stand Up Michigan, an industrial hygienist and anti-vax activist. If you follow Michigan Tea on Twitter, you'll learn a lot about Kirsten Megan. 
Linda Batista. I'm not sure who that person is. David Clement. I believe it might be David Clements. Uh, Clements is a law professor at Regents University who does election disinformation. Uh, here we have a rare appearance of a cleric who's not affiliated with the new apostolic revival, Archbishop Vicano. Uh, that is Mar Carlo Maria Vicano, a former papal nuncio to the United States. X-22 Dave. This is uh, the host of the Rubin Report, Dave Rubin. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. Uh, may have been of an error here. Mark Wayne, of course, is one name. It's not Mark Wayne Mullen. It's Mark Wayne Mullen. Uh, Representative of the United States House from the 2nd District of Oklahoma. Prophet Hank Kuhneman uh, from One Voice Ministries in Omaha, Nebraska. John Cramer, not entirely sure who that person is. Prophet Sid Roth, who's founder of the It's Supernatural Network. Chris Stewart. Uh, this could be Congressman Chris Stewart of Utah. Again, no, not sure. Fairly common name. Mark Nuttall. Nuttall is an attorney based in Norman, Oklahoma, a longtime Republican political figure, probably connected to every Oklahoma figure on this board. Pastor Greg Young, who's host of the Chosen Generation podcast. Mayor Craig Thurmond of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, who lost re-election in 2021. Dr. Eric Nupute, a chiropractor and vitamin D COVID huckster, from St. Louis, Missouri. Maria Zach, probably familiar to many of you, a leading figure behind Italy Gate, the idea that Italian orbital mind control lasers flip the election or something. Dr. Richard Bartlett, and yet another COVID disinformation officer. Representative Dan Crenshaw, congressman from the second U.S. House District of Texas. Justin Wren, uh, a wrestler. Tim Kennedy, a retired mixed martial artist. Tennessee Governor. This says Tennessee Governor. Of course, I'm assuming that refers to Bill Lee, Governor of Tennessee. Just the News, which is yet another far-right media outlet that bills itself as nonpartisan. Ian Fury, who is Christy Nome's communications director. Cheryl Chumley, the opinion editor at the Washington Times. Governor Christy Nome. Of course, governor of South Dakota since 2019. Nathan Dom, who sits in the Oklahoma State Senate. The Washington Times, just mentioned as an institution, apparently, the whole thing is connected to Trump somehow. Yeah, it would be, right? I mean, it is basically the official propaganda organ of the Republican Party. Tony Robbins. Now, there are other Tony Robbinses out there, of course, but this could be the, the life coach. Tony Robbins. Again, not sure. Uh, another possible misspelling here, Tim uh, Pitkatke. They, they add a, a, a C in there. It's a misspelling. Uh, this is actually someone who's a former special assistant to Donald Trump. Jensen Franklin, who's a pastor in Gainesville, Georgia. Mark Levin, a reactionary broadcaster. Mike Lindell. We're all familiar with Mr. Lindell, of course former crack addict, uh, and my pillow guy. Ed Elmore, Secret Service. Not quite sure, couldn't find any references to uh, this Ed Elmore person uh, with regard to the Secret Service. 
Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza is a uh, campaign finance felon, of course, who was pardoned by Donald Trump. Jung Farrow, an anti-Semitic rapper. Donald Trump Jr., one of Donald, one of Donald Trump Sr.'s sons, obviously. Uh, he's the one who looks like Butthead. Representative Michelle Steele from the 48th District of California. Sam Rohrer, president of something called the Pennsylvania Pastors Association and a former Pennsylvania State House member. The Black Robe Regiment, a supposedly Christian group advocating fascism and the end of democracy. I'm certain I've talked about them in connection with the Oath Keepers. Nicole and David Crank, appropriately named from the Faith Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Kevin Jessup, head of something called the Global Strategic Alliance, which is a 501c3. Jared Kushner, a slumlord billionaire who married the daughter of yet another slumlord billionaire. John Stubbins, host of Indivisible with John Stubbins. Susan Sweeten, uh, yet another COVID huckster, runs some kind of anti-vax travel agency called Freedom Airway and Travel Alliance. Uh, Debbie, America Can We Talk? So this would be Je Debbie Jorgados, a talk show host. James O'Keefe, Project Veritas, of course, uh, who goes around selectively editing videos uh, and trying to, you know, uh, get across various kind of nefarious schemes uh, through selective editing and, you know, doing queer things like, you know, various uh, honeypot schemes that never seem to play out the way they, they think they're doing. And, of course, dressing up like a pimp and other ridiculous schemes. Vernon Jones, former Georgia State House representative. Julia Marriott, an Oklahoma business coach. David J. Harris Jr., a lifestyle suppl supplement company head and a podcast host. Daryl Woodard, CEO of SageNet, a tech, tech firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Kirk Cameron, uh, a child star who is probably best known for a show I never watched called Growing Pains. Judy Mikovits, a research scientist and, yes, you guessed it, anti-vax activist. Attorney General Bill Barr, of course, head of the, former head of the Department of Justice, who resigned shortly before the end of Trump's term, and current author of One Damn Thing After Another, a book that is probably destined for remaindered bookshops. A Plandemic producer, Mickey Willis, a producer who produced the film Plandemic, a COVID disinformation project. Brianna Hoisinga Haspert, not quite sure who that is. Rodney Howard Brown, a YouTuber and conspiracy theorist and pastor of the River Church in Tampa Bay, Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis, who's probably best known as the current governor of Georgia. Peter Rock. Not sure who or what that is. Could be a reference to St. Peter. There may be some church somewhere. Um, not sure what they mean by that. Melania Trump. A Slovenian immigrant who got here on a genius visa and current uh, wife of Donald J. Trump. Mike Yoder, a D.C. area attorney. Kellyanne Conway, who's probably best known for her appearances on Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Lori Gregory, an Ocala City, Florida speaker at the anti-vax rally on January 6th. So we get another January 6th connection. 
Dr. Wakefield, a anti-vax activist from the UK. Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, yet another anti-vax activist um, who's famous for some reason. Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's favorite child. Kevin Sorbo, probably best known for playing Cole the Conqueror. Sam Sorbo, Kevin's wife. Sean Hannity, Fox News Entertainment producer, uh, personal advisor to Donald Trump. Robert Hefner IV. Now this is yet another Oklahoma connection. Hefner is part of a multi-generational oil family and politically connected family. Uh, his wife, Carol, was Trump's Oklahoma campaign manager. So, long-time, well-established uh, Republican political, and you know, rich guy. Uh, basically, if, if you ever watched Dallas, right? I mean, they're basically the Ewings, but they're from Oklahoma rather than uh, Dallas, Texas. Speaking of which, next item, uh, Carol Hefner, his wife, and former Oklahoma City mayoral candidate. Dr. Simone Gold, anti-vax activist, of course, uh, head of America's Frontline Doctors, and yet another January 6th connection. Of course, Gold pleaded guilty on March 3rd to entering or restricted building or grounds. Jason Padgett. Padgett is a businessman and a former candidate for Oklahoma City Mayor, yet another Oklahoma connection. Dan Boingino. Uh, Boingino, never sure how to pronounce it, because I don't watch his show. Uh, he is basically the new Rush Limbaugh, right? I mean, literally, they have given this guy Rush Limbaugh's time slot. Next one is the National Republican Party. Not sure what they mean by that, but that's what it says on the board. Uh, could be a reference to the RNC. Greg Gutfeld, a Fox News entertainment painter, a agnostic atheist, I don't know what that means, uh, who also has a Russian wife. Phil Kirpin, a president of American Commitment, a 501c4. Sean Spicer, former Trump propaganda minister. Lou Dobbs, former Fox business entertainer. Gigawire, I'm not sure what that is. Tom Seward, I'm not sure who that is either. Senator Terry Weaver, um, once again, actually a state representative rather than a senator from Tennessee. Um, for some reason, they can't, doesn't appear to be able to get representatives or senators in, in Tennessee correct. Except for the next person, Senator Mark Cody, who actually is uh, in the Tennessee State Senate and correctly identified here. Amber, assistant to Senator Mark Cody. Not, not, I haven't go, didn't go down to his staff directory. I only assume that's correct. Someone named Charlotte, just as Charlotte. Again, could be a reference to the entire city. I don't think so. Don't know. Dr. Ronnie Jackson. Ronnie Jackson, of course, is a representative in the United States House from Texas's 13th district and the former presidential physician. Dr. Carla Dean Graves, a Kansas City, Missouri osteopath and anti-vax activist. IMTV. IMTV is a network whose main purpose seems to be to provide a platform for Alan Keyes. Next is Alan Keyes, a former UN ambassador and the star of IMTV. Sammy Dash, who is in makeup sales and is also a radio host. Trump Store. Uh, of course, the Trump Store is the official website of the Trump Organization, where you can get $50 t-shirts, $100 polo shirts, 
and $45, 45 hats, and the $22 bars of soap. Remarkably, there's no mention made uh, on their website of where any of this stuff is made, but my guess is probably China. Brick Suit Brent. Brick Suit Brent is a guy named Brent who owns a suit that has a brick print. John Timothy. Not sure who that is. Kind of like Mike Smith. Common name. Uh, not really sure. Rick Manning. Rick Manning is president of a supposedly nonpartisan group called Americans for Limited Government. That is nonetheless wholly Trumpist. Their website looks like it was designed in about 1998. Kevin Freeman of the Blaze. Uh, Freeman is host of something called the Economic War Room. Dr. Richard Bartlett. Uh, Bartlett is yet another COVID doctor uh, who has an, is basically researching using an asthma treatment for COVID. Unlike every one of these other uh, COVID people, um, there's actually, this is actually in clinical trials, and it might actually appear to work. So I want to make that distinction. Again, legally it's important. There are a lot of COVID hucksters out there. Um, somehow this guy who actually appears to whatever else you might believe, this actually might actually work. So just shout out to all the COVID cranks out there. Don't want to include this guy in that category because whatever his weird ideological things might actually appear to be. Whatever sorts of ideological baggage you may have, uh, it looks like this might actually be an effective therapy for some patients. So one out of a thousand COVID uh, people who are in the, the Trump circle apparently might have something that might actually work. Professor Toto, a.k.a. Shane Vaughn, pastor of First Harvest Ministries in Waveland, Mississippi. Laura Trump. Uh, this is Trump's daughter-in-law. This is the one married to Eric Trump. And next is Eric Trump. This is Beavis to John Jr.'s butthead. Jeffrey Prather, host of the Prather Point podcast, former intelligence officer. His website boasts that he's been featured on YouTube. Phil Waldron. Uh, they spell Waldron with an E for some reason, which is an odd misspelling. Uh, Waldron, of course, is a bar owner, a former army colonel, and author of a now infamous PowerPoint. Doug Billings, host of The Right Side with Doug Billings podcast. C.J. Wheeler, political commentator listed more than once on the whiteboard. Huey Freeman, a reporter on thesteeltruth.com. Mary Flynn O'Neill. This is Mike Flynn's sister. Mike Adams, founding editor of naturalnews.com, uh, an anti-vax far-right website. General Thomas McInerney, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General and Assistant Vice Chief of Staff, retired in 1994. Ann Van Der Steel, of course, familiar figure by now, president of Your Voice America and a conspiracy theorist. General Flynn, former National Security Advisor and conspiracy theorist head of the uh, Flynn organization. General McInerney, uh, mentioned twice for some reason. Sheriff Richard Mack, former sheriff of the Graham County, of Graham County Arizona from 1988 to 1996, and a Oath Keepers board member, uh, head of this constitutional sheriff's movement. Roger Stone, of course, everyone knows who Roger Stone is, right? Watergate figure, personal friend of Dick Nixon and Roy Cohn, partner in the influence peddling firm of 
Black, Manafort, and Stone, organizer of the 2000 Brooks Brothers Riot in Florida, a convicted felon pardoned by Trump, Roger Stone has been involved in just about every toxic part of U.S. politics for my entire lifetime. Sean Coupland, a banker and a member of the, uh, sorry, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma Secretary of Congress, Commerce. Lance Fry, MD, former Oklahoma Health Commissioner. Eamon Ross, uh, they spelled Eamon with one A, it's actually two A's. Eamon Ross, host of the Kingdom in Politics podcast, yet another Dominionist charismatic project. Governor Stitt, Kevin Stitt, Governor of Oklahoma. Jenny Newsmax, uh, now this could be several people, it could be Jennifer Stefano, host of Wake Up America on Newsmax, or Jen Pellegrino, host of Crime News, also on Newsmax. C.J. Wheeler, so good you have to be listed twice. This is three times, I'm not even sure. C.J. Wheeler appearing on yet another spot on the board. Probably not a coincidence that she is a booking agent for far-right media appearances, and Clay Clark appears on her website. Hogan Gidley, former White House Deputy Press Secretary, Trump 2020 Campaign Press Secretary, Newsmax contributor, and now works for the America First Policy Institute, where he is in charge of something they call the Center for Election Integrity. Andrew Whitney, vice chairman of an outfit calling itself Phoenix Biotechnology, which is pushing something called Oleandrin as a kind of a COVID panacea. Ben Carson, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, former presidential candidate, and retired neurosurgeon. Well, I think I might have actually accidentally listened to a whole segment of this twice. Uh, Lynn Wood, probably best known for representing the family of John Benet Ramsey as they search for the real killers, uh, front and center in many of the phony election-related lawsuits filed by Trump. Paul Bush, not sure who that is. Sidney Powell, of course. Sidney Powell, probably best known for losing a case against, uh, on behalf of a Merrill Lynch executive who's a participant in Enron's vast financial fraud network, and for her desire to unleash the Kraken, uh, which of course is a mythological beast, and, you know, kind of mythological like her many fantastic theories. And like Lynn Wood, I should mention, Sidney Powell currently fa faces bar action. Uh, Anna Kate, K-H-A-I-T. Kate is a reality TV show contestant who appeared on season 32 of Survivor, where she finished 13th out of 18. Then she turned to professional poker, which she eventually gave up, having achieved career earnings of $12,000 on the professional poker tour. She also had a YouTube channel, but it was banned. So now, she loves Jesus. Uh, she was incidentally born in Leningrad in 1988. Mark Meadows, of course, Everyone knows Mark Meadows, Trump White House Chief of Staff, who provided such valuable evidence that Denver Briggleman said that he ought to be on the payroll of the January 6th Committee. Shannon Inhofe. Now, this is probably a reference to T.W. Shannon, who is a former Speaker of the Oklahoma State House, who is running to fill Senator Inhofe's seat, which will be filled via a special election on November 8th of 2022. Bond Payne who is uh, the Chief of Staff for the Oklahoma Governor. Project Veritas, again mentioned, uh, Dirty Tricks Operation, selectively editing videos. I've talked about it. Uh, I believe it appears on, on, on 
once. Congressman Paul Gosar, member of the U.S. House from the 4th District of Oklahoma and a member of the House Sedition Caucus. Uh, who knows, maybe he is the member of Congress referenced in uh, the documents or the agenda that appears in the latest tranche of Eastman emails. Who knows? Matt Pinnell, Lieutenant Governor of Oklahoma. Pastor Daryl Scott, pastor of the New Spirit Revival Center in Cleveland, Ohio, and served on the Trump transition team. Someone described as Trump Deanna, uh, who I believe may be Deanna Lorraine, who is a YouTuber and former candidate for the nonpartisan primary for the 12th U.S. House District in California, which of course is Nancy Pelosi's district. Lorraine finished fifth with 1.8% of the vote, 4,635 votes, which was just shy of Nancy Pelosi by 185,955 votes. And finally, One America News, which is a far-right propaganda network, propped up by AT&T, oddly. So if you're an AT&T uh, customer, subscriber, uh, you know, let them know. You don't necessarily need One America News, their official alternative to Fox. Uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of weird that you've got such a large, well, maybe it's not weird, large corporation uh, basically hosting an, uh, an outfit who appears, you know, to have as their main objective, undermining American democracy. All right, so that's it. That is the whiteboard of nonsensical, some of, you know, some of these people we know are significant. Some of them are involved in January 6th. Some of them just appear to be people who have appeared in Clay Clark's podcast. Is this weird, magical thing? It's hard to separate. I feel like I'm, I'm enmeshed in postmodern literature here. Like, what is real? What's not real? Um, you know, is this all a giant waste of my time? Uh, could be. I don't know. But it was, it was kind of a, a, a dangling thread that I just wanted to, to get this project done. Uh, you know, because it's something I started a long time ago and then lately just finished up on it. And I still don't know where it stands. I mean, it does point to the importance of this new apostolic revival movement to the broader Trumpist movement. Points out probably, you know, some legitimate connections uh, between this effort and certain well-connected people in Oklahoma politics, certainly. And, of course, the importance and centrality of the Flynn network to all of this. So, just want to get out one quick episode right before the hearings, um, you know, I think we have some idea of what to expect, right? The focus is going to be on the Proud Boys. Be very interested to see what Chairman Thompson and Vice Chair Cheney have to say. And hopefully, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do like a little reaction episode afterwards, but it is my, my hope, at least, that this will be able to seize the attention of the American public, even the people who ordinarily wouldn't necessarily follow this closely. That you and I know there's lots of things that uh, we've discussed here on this podcast that have not really been disseminated into the public consciousness. And I think this is going to provide an, an opportunity for people who are not obsessed with January 6th to get some sense of the, you know, the direct connections between groups such as the Proud Boys and the inner circle of plotters and organizers uh, for people who haven't sat down and watched the videos and seen exactly how organized the attack was, and how you had so many people who were directing the crowd to attack the Capitol in so many ways. 
Hopefully the video evidence is going to be compelling. I'm sure Tim Heafy is going to do an excellent job, as well as, of course, all the members of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. Thank you so much for your time. Please listen tomorrow at 8 o'clock, uh, again, on all the major news networks, with the exception, of course, of Cable News Network. Um, it will also be up, I'm pretty sure, on C-SPAN. C-SPAN does an excellent job of recording all important House and Senate hearings, even, even, even really minor committee hearings, they will cover. So uh, if you don't have access, for example, to like major American news sources, uh, C-SPAN is a good place, a good resource uh, to find that information. So until next time, hopefully very soon, I'm Scott Coon.